Hey guys, uh, we're back at uh, the Gary Wilkinson Podcast. Hope you were with us last episode. If not, I wanted to encourage you to get back in uh, the, our first interview we had with, with Chris Palmer. Uh, Chris is a pastor, a scholar, a theologian, a writer. Uh, he's on Instagram, uh, Greek for the Week is a, a YouTube, and he's written uh, uh, several, several books, Letters from Jesus. Uh, you've written a book about the, the seven churches in Revelation. What's that called? What's the title of that one? Yeah, that one's so that one's Letters from Jesus, and then um, then there's Greek Word Study, which is the Greek book. That you... Yeah, so get on Amazon or your favorite bookseller and, and pick up those books. You'll be really deeply inspired. And if you were listening last week, I know you were inspired just like I was, and, and thrilled in heart to. Uh, you know what better what better place to spend your time than hearing about God? You know uh, what he what he's like and. So we're going to continue our talk, Chris, on uh, on the Trinity. Welcome back. Glad you're with us again this week. Good to be here with you, Gary. And uh, let's let's kick it in the high gear. Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, tell us a little bit more about the the councils and the creeds and how they and why they're important to us. I mean, sometimes that can sound a little scholarly for us, like um, uh, you know, but but they're they're essential to our faith. Uh, so you started talking about the. Uh, Council of Nicaea, I think it was the first one. Yeah. And that was dealing with the uh, Arian um, heresy. Yep. Uh, so tell us a little more about that one. Let's, let's, okay, so let's yeah, so, so you have this, so, so in the fourth century, you have this really smart guy that comes along. You have the Apostles' Creed, right? And the Apostles' Creed was um, the earliest version of a creed that suggests who Christ is, or it summarizes essentially basic Christian beliefs, okay? Was, was that, sorry to interrupt, but was that written at, at a council, or was that written more independently, and then councils came after that. Yeah, so the councils came after that. So we're, okay. the councils we're talking about, the fourth century councils, okay, they have to come, the main ones that we usually discuss, okay, fourth century, there's, there's, before that, they come together, and this guy, Arius, who's super smart, super articulate, he begins to say things like this, okay, which sound really, that didn't condemn the creed. We talked about this on the last episode, that, that the, the, the Apostles' Creed didn't necessarily disagree with, such as, he says things like, there was a time when Jesus was not. Each member of the Godhead is of different substance than uh, and nature from God. And the Father alone is the eternal God, or the Father is greater than I. So he says these things, and he, uh, along with, the Son is the first and the greatest created, and the person of the Trinity have three distinct natures. This is extremely problematic, okay? Because if they have different natures and they have different substances, then they're not, they're three gods. So you have a polytheistic religion. And you have a pagan religion. Okay. So now what happens is you begin to wonder, is the Apostles Creed enough? Because the Apostles Creed doesn't condemn this. So he's kind of found the loophole in this. And so if the Apostles Creed doesn't condemn this, then people are going to fall into this heresy. And so the teachings of Arius now require that there has to be clarification on what the church believes. So they have to put more to this and build this out more. And like I said, in the last podcast episode, Constantine, the emperor, he gets involved in this. He calls the church fathers together for a council, and those church fathers had to decide in their um, in their churches what do they believe about the Trinity. You have the Council of Nicaea, Constantinople, Church at Rome, Church at Carthage, Church at Jerusalem. They have to decide what they're going to believe. Okay, and so Athanasius, who is the bishop of Alexandria, he decides that um, that Christ is the same essence, which is homoousius. And if you're a first, if you're a first year Bible student, you're going to learn this word homoousius, which means same essence. Arius was saying, no, no, no. They are different essence or heterousius, right? 
So you have homoousios, you have heterousios. And so they're deciding over what, which one is it going to be? Is it homo? Is it heterousios? And then Athanasius wins the day and he suggests that, okay, this is, this is homoousios, that he is of the same substance. Well, that's great. So when you see in the Nicene Creed, you see, you, you see it suggested that he is of the same substance, okay? Then after that, you have something that comes along, which is semi-Arianism, okay? And semi-Arianism suggests that he's of similar essence. The similar essence is homoeusius, okay? So there's literally a, a yoda of difference in this. And he's saying it's not, he's not different, but he's of similar substance, okay? So then you have to go back and you have to fix this. Then you have the Athanasius Creed, and the Athanasius Creed puts the brakes on this, and he's it, which um, amends the Nicene Creed and suggests that, okay, he is the same. He's not of, he's not of similar. He's the same substance. So they have to keep that term terminology there. And so they're deciding on the exact nature of Christ, which is not homoousios, not heterousios, but homoousios, the same. And, and, you know, perhaps people that don't really follow church theology or are not thinking about this, don't realize what was really at stake at this time. Okay. And if that was, if, we, if they had lost that day, if Athanasius would have lost that day, okay, and the semi-Arians or the Arians had won that day, we wouldn't have Christianity as we know it today. We just would not. It would be no different from, from um, what Hinduism has, a, a number of gods. So God used the church at that time, and he used church fathers, and he used church doctors to really spell that out and to bring it, uh, to, bring it to the forefront and give it to us to preserve. And that's why, you know, when we look at heresies today that don't that that deny who the son is as god such as jehovah's witnesses or as um, as mormons we have to just make it clear that these sorts of things they were decided at the church councils they have been they have been wrestled with the church wrestled with them and they settled these and so because of that we need to know that you know i i heard um i think it was who was it that said this um one of the great teachers of the past, I can't remember who it was, said this, if we don't teach old heresies, we are bound to repeat them. Mm-hmm. If we don't teach what they went through in those days, they're going to show up. When you look at the landscape of Christianity and you see things that are heretical, they're not new. They're old heresies that are just repurposing themselves in different vocabulary or in different movements but they're old heresies. And that's why tradition is so important to go back to know what took place in the first century, second century, third century, fourth century, first few centuries. Yeah. So, so what you're saying to me clearly um, contends with this, this uh, false view of the, those, those um, councils were put together to try to invent the Trinity. Uh, you know, they, they were actually, they actually already believed the Trinity. They were contending for the exactly. faith. Exactly. Because they, well, they, I mean, I would suggest what counters that is the fact that they knew Arius was wrong. That's why there was a controversy. They weren't inventing it. They knew he was wrong because they knew that there was, in fact, a trinity. And so they had to. I'm sorry. Even though they didn't have the, the full canon, of, they didn't have all the Bibles of the books put together at the time. Right. They, they did have access to the, the apostles, you know, uh, Paul's writings. So, so it wasn't just sort of they were just kind of randomly asking the Holy Spirit, like, tell us the truth. They, they had content, right? Yeah, absolutely, they did. And yeah. they had content. They knew that they had to contend for Christ's divinity, okay, and his humanity. Because remember, the Gnostics came around the first century. 
right? And then in the second century. So the first, the first thing that the church really dealt with was Gnostic heresy, Marcion and the Gnostics, okay? Which was really, it was downplaying Christ's um, humanity. He wasn't human because the Gnostics believe that all substance and all material is bad, right? So, and, and really it's evil. And so the, the goal is to be released from this human body and to be released from, from material things. That was Neoplatonic. And, and that in and of itself was bad because they didn't believe that Christ could actually have come as, as a human being because flesh is bad in all nature, all things substance, substantial are bad. And so he couldn't have come. Well, if he didn't come as a human being, then he couldn't die, right? He couldn't go to the cross. So this was something that was heretical at the time and they had to deal with it. Well, then you, so they're challenging Christ's humanity. Well, then 400 years, 300 years later, what's the challenge about? It's Christ, it's Christ's uh, divinity. He's not that much God. So you see these heresies that are, it always comes down to the son. Most of the time, the, the, the relationship to the son, that's why Christology, when you're talking about the creeds and the council's formation of the canon, it becomes so important. What do you do with the son? Because he was the one that was incarnate. So we have to have, so what the church councils were saying, St. Athanasius was big on, is we have to maintain the full divinity of God, right? Because if you lose the full divinity of God, you lose the Christian message completely, right? right? In losing, so if you, lose the full, if you lose the full divinity of God, what happens? You lose revelation because if he is not God, then he can't make God fully known because through, through God alone can only God be made known. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's profound. And then what happens is, if I can add to that, you lose redemption because the reason Jesus can be the mediator between God and man is because he is God and because he's man. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So you lose that if you lose this battle. And then you, you and then another thing, uh, Gary, that you lose is Christ is high priest or a powerful high priest, because if he's human, OK, he can sympathize with our weaknesses as the high priest. But if he's not God, then how is he supposed to overcome our weaknesses? Can't do it. So what's at stake here again is the high priesthood of Christ. Mm -hmm. And then here's even something that Athanasius brought up and he challenged Arius about. If he's not fully God and you worship him, then what are you doing? It's idolatry. Idolatry, So he brought that up and said, it's idolatry. So you can't do that. So this is why these things matter to us. And this is why it's important. And, and I always suggest that it's important to know this because just because it was settled in their time, our time, that's not necessarily the case. And people go back into these things without realizing that they're doing it because, well, you know, we're talking about Jesus. So isn't that great? Well, what Jesus are you talking about? Yeah. That's important. Another, that we... another Jesus, you know, there's, uh, yeah, which you know, is a different Christ. You know, that's so, you know, Paul was on that right in the first century. Uh, understanding that we we can't just have a nebulous Christ. We have to have one that's well-defined. And that's what these, not only scripture, obviously, but the, the creeds help do that. So 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 the, the Council of Nicaea was uh, contending against the Arian uh, uh, heresy that Christ was created. Uh, he was lesser, not one essence. Uh, then there was another one right after that was, uh, I made it, I made pronounce this wrong. Sibelian. Am I saying that right? Or is- yeah. So you had Sibelianism. So, well, after the council of Nicaea in 381, you had the council of Constantinople. And so that one was taking aim at Apollinarianism, which was, the, which was the idea was that Christ had a true body and a spirit, but that the soul on him was replaced. Okay. By the Logos and claimed divine. And, and so which he claimed 
was a divine um, element. Absolutely. You're going to have to repeat that. I, that went too fast for me. I, okay, so yep. uh, this is the second major council, uh, and it was and it was dealing with is this Sibelianism or no? This is different. Uh, this is this is Apollinarianism. Okay, okay. which Sorry. which basically okay. So the ba- the basic way I can explain it to you is that Jesus's humanity was absorbed into his divinity. Okay. So he didn't have uh, two natures. He wasn't fully. Right, man. He was just one, one nature. Exactly. So it goes against the, it goes against what we believe is the hypostatic union, right? Okay. Yeah. And and uh, you were so well, you you clearly articulated the danger why it was so important to come against Arianism. Yeah. Why why was it important to come against the Christ having absorbed in one nature? What would be wrong with that? I think the problem with that is is again you know you're not. He, the first problem is he didn't have one nature. I mean, he had a divinity, right? Because he had, because again, he has to have these two natures to do the high priestly work of redemption. He has to have a human nature so that he can represent humanity, yeah. right? He has to have a human nature because it, he's going to represent us federally and he's going to die. And that's, I, I think what John's point was in suggesting Christ, you know, uh, when you look in the gospel accounts, you see him as we go and celebrate towards Easter, um, he bled in the garden. This is revealing his humanity to us. So there's elements in the text where he hungered, okay, where he had hunger, where you see that Jesus was a human. And that was very important. But in, in the same note, like I said before, in his high priestly role, so f- for him to be our high priest, he has to be, he has to sympathize with our weakness. So he has to be man, but then he has to overcome them. And he can only do that as God. So if you blend them together and say that he was, it wasn't God and man, he was just one, you can't have the work of redemption. Wow. Like, so that goes back to what we say in the first podcast, it has to take the God, it has to take the God, God, man to do it. hundred percent God, hundred percent man. That's why we maintain that because you can't have the work of redemption. The Christian story collapses completely. Mm. That's really important. That's a, it just, it's not something we hear a whole lot about. You know, if you walk into a Christian bookstore today or go on Amazon, the top hundred books, of Christian sales books, it's, 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 we talked about earlier, it's usually a little bit more about me, you know, how can I, mm-hmm. my beautiful life. And, uh, but man, I just wish, I wish we would get a fresh hunger for this stuff and, uh, and, and dig into I think, it. Well, to be encouraged, I think that's coming. I really do think that's coming. Yeah. I think because I know that um, where I go uh, in circles where you have sort of more mainline mainstream Christianity, pastors are saying we, we need more theology. We need more theology. Yeah. And we want theology in a way that's not dead and dry, but a way that can be faithful, a way that a Christian orthodoxy, I think in mainstream Christianity, whether it char- mostly charismatic Pentecostal sort of circles, people really don't use the word Pentecostal so much anymore, but charismatic type places um, are saying we need more theology and people to preach this because I think there's a crisis of the intellect that is going on. And we're having really to explain our faith better. And I, maybe it's that, People don't understand their faith the way they do, or you start to see fanaticism that goes on, uh, the handling of doctrine in a poor manner, and you're like, hey, we need to do something about it. So what I say is that if you look over the landscape of church history, there comes crises where the church has to look to its doctors to figure it out, Mm -hmm. and the church has to look to its historians to figure this out, and God puts that into um, the hands of them to do that. And so what, what you have going on today in Western culture um, with postmodernism, um, the challenging of orthodox beliefs in society and culture and what biblical, what, what the word of God has to say, what the Bible has to say, 
um, there's going to be a time where people are called on, doctors are called on to try and figure this out and really educate and teach our people in a way that's articulate. Does that make sense? Yeah, all right. It makes total sense to me. That <clears throat> the um, you you had mentioned that if we don't, you know, if we don't understand the ancient heresies, we're kind of uh, may may repeat them again in the, in the modern church. <clears throat> Do you see some other than sort of like Jehovah's Witness or Mormonism? Yeah, yeah. Within our own movement, the Pentecostal, Charismatic, uh, yeah. even Baptist or Evangelical. Do you see some of these things reoccurring? In any yeah, yeah. Fashion? Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things we have to be concerned about is Gnosticism and being, being Gnostic, okay? Um, this idea that, you know, when you divide the body from the spirit in a way, you know, what do you say? Man has a tripart nature, has a spirit, has a body, or has a, sp- a body, spirit, and soul. And you divide that so distinctly. What ends up happening is that you become, um, you become, sort of an enemy of your own self where you say the spirit is good, but the flesh is bad. Right. And you start thinking the body is bad. So this is what the Gnostics did. When you look in first John chapter, when you look at first John in the Greek, you see this term, even as it's just like, even as, even as, even as we must love like Christ, even as. And so this was, this was a, a phrase that was against the Gnostics at that time, because the Gnostics believed if my body is bad, it doesn't matter what I do with it because it's bad. My soul, my spirit is good, but my body is bad. And the way that they believe they encountered God was not with their body because it could be discarded. They could throw it away because it was going to be, it's, it's, it, you're, you're trying to get deliverance from your body. So they believed in higher consciousness, higher thought, higher thinking. So the more revelation knowledge I have, the more I encounter God irregardless of how I live or what I do with my body. I don't have to serve God with my body, but John was very clear. You must follow God even as Christ walked. Mm-hmm. So we have to live the way and honor God and glorify God with our bodies. And so I say, I have to say that in, in circles, sometimes it's often preached, well, you're the new creation in Christ. So what matters is how much revelation knowledge you get. Not so much if you live a holy lifestyle, mm-hmm. that's Gnostic. Okay. Or, or the way that we encounter God is not through, faith and good works okay the, the, and the way that we live but what hidden knowledge or what hidden seekers that we have because the word gnostic comes from the greek word gnosis which means knowledge or higher knowledge and so sometimes the mark of spirituality in charismatic circles can be how much esoteric understanding god gave you in your prayer closet god said to me this god said to me this and it creates a pride within people and that is not really the hallmark of spirituality, the hallmark of spirituality is living and acting and behaving and modeling the example that Christ left for us to model. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? And so I see that it, there's levels of this, but it, it's moving towards Gnosticism. And you're seeing that take place in some quarters now? Or? Oh yeah, I definitely think so. I think that there are, I'm not condemning them, um, but I think that they need to be careful that they don't get into this whole, um, you know, visions and dreams and everything is what leads us and what, what denotes the mark of spirituality is, is um, what I hear from God in my prayer closet all the time. Because, you know, I was saying, I was teaching last night to, um, uh, to a group of students at a church and I was saying that, um, the way that we interpret scripture, uh, there, there, we have biases at times. We are someone who's doing something and bringing something to the text. And so we have to have a, one of the ways that we interpret scripture is the word, the spirit, but also the community. So as the community, we're responsible for coming together to, inter- to interpret the scriptures together because no scriptures of private interpretation, right? 
And so in interpreting the text together, we come to a corporate understanding of what that means. But that's typically how it's done. And that safeguards us from, from getting off and in, in becoming individualized. But in Western culture, everything has become so individualized. It's me, myself, and my Bible, and what Jesus tells me in my prayer closet, irregardless of what you have to say. And Paul brings the community into Corinthians when he tells the Corinthians, judge the scriptures, judge or judge prophecy, judge what people have to say. And so here's the striking concern. What happens if you are a community that hasn't been built right and been built to be discerning? Then you become subdued by false teaching and false heresy. And so I think this is what happens in, in circles where they fall into things like Arianism or false doctrines about Christ or false doctrines about the Trinity is that they're not trained to be discerning. They're not mm -hmm. able to spot things like that. And so a pastor's responsibility, I believe, is to train up a discerning community so they can judge all things without being skeptical and without being fanatical. And that's a fine line. Wow. Have you followed the, the <clears throat> I don't have a lot of information on it, but it just, you know, little, little bits of pieces here and there. Uh, it's kind of a Trinitarian argument going on um, where some um, churches that delve quite deeply into the healing ministry, uh, prophetic ministry, that they're, they're being accused of saying uh, Jesus did his miracles as a man, not as God. Mm -hmm. And therefore, he did that as a man so you can show us that we can do the exact same things that yeah, Jesus yeah. can do. Yeah. I, yeah, I think that's seriously problematic. Seriously problematic. I mean, because that would be like perhaps the kenosis doctrine, which he emptied himself out of all of his divine his divineship and, and, and did those things. But that goes back to the book of John when we understand Christology. Okay. John, remember, John is building this theological framework for Christ. He needs to show his, those are reading who Christ is. That's, that's the goal of reading John. And in doing so, there are times where when John writes about things Jesus does, he shows divinity, right? Then there, he walks on the water, okay? He, or he turns water into wine, divine things. But then there are times where he does, he does human things, okay? Such as he bleeds, he mourns, he weeps over Lazarus. He's, you know, wrestling with the prospect of, of dying and facing human death. And so the line is blurred that you see divinity and you see humanity all wrapped into, into one. And so the problem with those people that say, well, he emptied himself so we can do these exact same things. Show me someone walking on the water. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I haven't seen it. I can guarantee you they would have, not to say that that can't happen. Okay, not to say that that cannot happen, but I haven't seen it. And if if that did happen, um, God would have to have a special purpose in doing something like that. So I think it shows Christ's divinity and I think it shows humanity um, because he had when you say empty, how could God not be God? That would be my, my question. You <laughs> empty yourself into man. So I think that's very problematic. And again, it goes back to understanding what the first century uh, believed. And that is they had several Christological statements at that time in the son being in the Godhead, number one, Jesus is fully and completely divine. It doesn't ever cease to be right. right? Jesus is fully and completely human. The natures of Christ are distinct and his divine and human natures are fully united in one person. Yeah. Okay. Again. And so that goes back to what we we're talking about uh, in the council of Constantinople, when they're fighting Apollinarianism, that one is not absorbing the other. They're definitely unique. 
And that's the, those are, I would say the, the key statements of biblical Christology, which talks about the second person of the Godhead. Mm, that's important stuff. That's that you know, you're bound to repeat the errors of history if you don't learn from them. And so that's, you know, we're seeing that as you just clearly articulated that, you know, if, if people are not seeing the divine nature of Christ and trying to replicate divinity in themselves, you know, that. that uh, yeah. And so Gary, think about what that leads to. I mean, it leads to a tremendous inflated sense of self, mm-hmm. a tremendous inflated. And this could also turn into a maybe someone saying this is in, inwardly attracted to such a doctrine because they're power hungry there's something broken inside of them that wow. wants to be you know i was looking this is a very sobering thing i was looking up an article i, was, I forgot where i was this is starbucks or something and i was reading this article about the professions top professions that sociopaths are attracted to and one of them was a pastor or a minister wow that's scary yeah it's very scary we have to really and that's why i think that it's important to allow the community to play a part in understanding the text and interpreting the text and having a discerning community. I tell my church, uh, my church people, not saying other people should do this, but it's okay. It's okay to disagree with me at times or whenever, whenever, whenever you feel like I'm not, I don't want a disagreeable church, but I'm just saying that, look, I, I don't want there. Everybody to believe everything I say all the time. Okay. Cause there's no way I can be right. A hundred percent of the time. It's just not. And I want people who are thinking, otherwise you could end up becoming a cult. All right. You could end up becoming, they believe anything. I'd rather have a discerning community that, that can be, that can agree to disagree at times um, with that. And that to me is inspired by the idea that somebody said one time that, that, that the number one sign of a false teacher is somebody who always says they know everything all the time. Mm. You know, they always have the answers to everything. I mean, that's, that's clearly a sign of trouble. And so we, we have to be humble. And that's what I like about the church councils. When they went together, they worked together as a community to really understand what do we, the church, the representatives of the church believe about the Trinity? What do we believe about the person of Christ? And they, and they, and they wrestle with that. I like that. That's important. So when you walk, if you know the councils and you know the creeds, <clears throat> excuse me, when you walk into a church and you hear something like, you know, you are a God or you can do everything that Jesus did exactly, you know, and even, you know, maybe even misinterpreting greater things, you know, you're going to yeah, yeah. walk above the water by six feet, you know, or whatever, just greater, <clears throat> greater things. The, if you know those, your history, you know, well, first of all, you know, your Bible, you know, your history, you know, these uh, councils that have actually clearly labeled these things, greater minds than mine have labeled these things as heresies. If you know those things, then, then it's not just scholarly, head knowledge you're after it's you you can discern you can walk into any church in, around the world and say you know that's that was already disproven i don't need to i don't need to sort of get into a debate with you about that that's already clearly yeah it's magical thinking i mean it becomes this element of magical thinking and you know it's it's, it's uh what some people would call a overextended eschatology you know that that everything so that would basically mean that um, you know, we believe as theological people that the kingdom of God is and is yet to come, is here and is coming. Okay, it crashed and it broke into the earth through the reign of Christ. But yet there is an element of, or we'd say an overrealized eschatology. So we have an element of the kingdom that has been realized. Christ has done the work. He performed it on the cross, rose from the dead. And there is an element of that that is yet to come. The kingdom is yet to come. Mm-hmm. And so... 
over-realized eschatology would essentially mean that you think that all of the benefits of the kingdom that are yet to come can be had in this time. And that's just not the case, which would mean, I mean, there's people that go as far as say that we don't have to die, right? Mm-hmm. That, that uh, you know, every sickness is going to be healed all the time. Well, that's, and the, and this, this difficulty with that is, is it's not, and there's, there, it's not the case. And it puts the burden back on the person and makes the person feel guilty. Um, and, you know, you say, well, we don't know what's in that person's heart. But yes, what, what you're saying is that they did something wrong. So you are saying, you know, it's in that person's heart. They, somehow, somewhere along the line, they did something wrong. And that simply is, may not be the case in many cases. Um, and so this is over-realized. And it, I think it leaves, in, in 15 years of pastoral experience, uh, we have to be careful because it leaves people really disappointed and angry at God when it doesn't pan out the way the preacher tells them to. And they may walk away from God. Yeah. Uh, that's As you were saying that, the first part, I, my mind went exactly what you're saying, that it's going to cause people to be um, feel like his promises aren't true. Uh, you know, I, I had faith and it didn't work. That, you know, all those kind of things we've heard about before. Yeah, yeah. So your church, as you preach these things, you know, you said you were you were preaching after reading Asinace's book. Uh, your people are like, yeah, pastor, they're, they're not. So yeah. come on, give us something more practical. They're they're really they're ready for it. Yeah, you know, I'm I've been getting to that point where they can, they can be excited about theology. Um, you know, we have. We have some sharp people in our church that like to study um, and, and like to go to the text, but I always caution them about the balance. You know, you don't want to be a bookworm who doesn't have a prayer life and you don't want to be someone who's always praying, but has no knowledge. So there's a fine balance. And there may be at times where you wrestle with that tension because there are times where you're given more to prayer than you are to study. And there are times where you're given more to study than you are to prayer. Um, so I don't look at it as a day-to-day thing because you might feel like if you look at it as a day-to-day thing or even a week-to-week thing, you're like, man, I, I studied 10 hours this week. I only prayed two. Um, I'm missing it somewhere. And uh, maybe the perspective in God's eyes is bigger than that, that there's a balance between prayer and study. And so I'm trying to shape them in that because they know how to pray. They're from traditions that we know how to pray. And I'm always teaching them how to pray. But other times I'm like, look at, why not take something? Okay, Jesus, when he's on the cross, right? One of the examples I'd like to use uh, in Mark's account where he says, you know, Father, why have thou forsaken me? What is Jesus doing? He's going to the Jewish prayer book at that time, which was the Psalms in Psalm chapter 22. And he's taking the Psalm out and he's praying that because a Jew at his time who is going through a challenging or difficult trial would pray Psalm chapter 22. Jesus had a prayer book. He was using the prayers of somebody else to pray to the father. Why can't we use the prayers of other people? And I I was telling my church, go through Augustine's confessions at times. You know, Augustine's confessions. I remember I was going through a dark period of my life where I couldn't string prayer together and I used Augustine's uh, confessions. And it really was um, very, it was, it was really a great thing uh, to see the wrestlings that he had were similar to some of the wrestlings that I would have and the discontentments, et cetera. Uh, so my churches, I'm trying to form them in theology. I think that a lot of the ancient uh, theology at, the, at that time is extremely important and they need to know about their history. Let me share this. Um, because we're talking about doctrine and we're talking about the Trinity. Um, I don't want to get too far away from that. Um, there was an individual I knew one time who is quite angry at, at God for some circumstances that they had in their own personal lives. And they were well-meaning, well, well-intended Christian and still were, but they were just anxious and, you know, discontent with their faith. Um, they were blaming God. So I asked them, I said, do you, what do you understand about Christian theology? Not, not much. 
They answer, not much. What do you understand about church history? Not much. What do you understand about perhaps contemporary theology, you know, far back, say, the 1900s? Not much. So we went through this whole gamut of surveying the lay of the land to see what they really understood about Christian thinking, Christian philosophy, Christian thought, systematic theology, church history. And we pinpointed the fact that they really didn't know much, maybe this much from a percentage or a fraction of their own tradition that they were part of in their own time and their, that tradition in that own time. And so I asked them, do you really think you know at this point, after surveying things, honestly, much about Christianity and the God that you serve at all? No. But you're angry at them and you're blaming them for everything. Mm-hmm. You know? And so I thought, maybe let me challenge them and say, why don't you spend this time instead of angry and frustrated at God? Maybe the Lord's inviting you on a journey out of your frustration to begin to rediscover the roots and the foundation of your faith, the roots and the foundation of your theology and read men and women of God over the centuries. Okay. Who have wrestled with the same questions and the same problems. St. Thomas Aquinas, church fathers, C.S. Lewis, these great thinkers and start building a different theology that is more sustainable and that will better satisfy you. Because I, because if you move away from Christianity, what do you move to another religion or you go into agnosticism or you go into atheism. Okay. And none of these will satisfy. These are all, these all are all philosophical and theological systems as well. Materialism is a theology is, is a philosophical system. Um, you can go into studying the philosophers. Okay. Nietzsche and Kant and whoever, these are all philosophical systems. Do you really think that those are without holes and that those are going to answer the deepest questions of life? You got to move somewhere. So why don't you stay right where you're at because you know you have peace in your heart and just dig deeper and try to get to those answers. And you know something? They've been on that journey. They've been enjoying it. Yeah, yeah. That, that'll drive people. To, you, know, you, you were talking about prayer a minute ago. <clears throat> and you know, I think the true, true study of knowledge of God you know, A.W. Tozer calls it the knowledge of the holy. Uh, for me, it, it can't help but drive me to prayer and worship. You know, I'm, I'm here in my study now, and very rarely an hour goes by if I'm I'm looking at some stuff, whether it be scripture or Augustine or Anselm or something, and, and I just don't go, God, you, you're so much bigger than I thought, you know. Yeah. And, and for me to be angry in times past where I was angry at, at you, um, I, uh, even though my father started a ministry called Teen Challenge, a drug rehab program around the world. One of my own sons got addicted to heroin and he became homeless. And I was like, you know, God, you know, I thought you said no weapon formed against us shall prosper or, you know, you'll do above and beyond all that we think or imagine. This is way below what I had imagined for my son or, and those weapons sure seem to be prospering. And I had to like reinterpret, not reinterpret scripture, but learn it for the first time, maybe is a better way of saying it, like that, yep. that <clears throat> weapons formed against me, not prospering, doesn't mean that I'm not going to get wounded here or there, or, uh, you know, some scars in battle. Uh, but and ultimately, it won't prosper if I know who you are and, and love you. And, you know, thank the Lord, my son came back to Christ and, yeah. and clean and sober now for five years. But, wow. you know, experiences in life like that can, if you don't know God, <clears throat> can, can get you to accuse him. And, but if you do know him, it drives you to <clears throat> drives you to your knees. You know, you see that. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm just getting over, <clears throat> getting over a little bit of a cold. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I no, I I completely agree. I there's been, you know in seasons of my life, uh, the writings of C.S. Lewis have been tremendous. Grief observed, the problem of pain, uh, mere Christianity, um, and I encourage 
uh, Christians to really who haven't wrestled with these things to wrestle with them and to understand that, like I said before, we have to move somewhere in our thinking, right? We, we're thinkers. Human, all human beings are thinkers. Um, so people that live, leave Christianity, they're not going to be any happier. I just don't think that, you know, they just really won't. And so instead of thinking about going somewhere, like you're saying, Gary, rediscover it. And to tie it back to what we're talking about, as I shared in the first broadcast, I had a friend, deep, dark season in his life. He began to rediscover what he knew about God. And it began with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, and understanding his purpose in our redemption and his purpose in, in creation, his purpose in the eschaton. Um, so it, it, and the way that the writers reveal him to us as a triune God um, really does wonders to our faith. And like C.S. Lewis said, it's a breath of fresh air that blows through our minds um, and changes our, and really gives us sort of a break from this postmodern filter that we see things through. Good stuff. Uh, do you have time for a few more questions? Yeah, shoot them at me. Shoot them at me. All right, thanks. Uh, and these are a little bit random. They're, they're on the Trinity. Um, one of the things I've had a hard time understanding with the Trinity is if they're one essence, um, it seems biblically they communicate with each other. Yeah. And so um, is one essence, they're, they're, they're one in will, they're one in uh, uh, essence, they're, they're one, the, the one, the one I have the most trouble with, not that I disagree with it, are they one in one consciousness too? I mean, do they, do they think thoughts different than the others? So the father, even though they're one, the father's thinking like, hey, son, uh, does my question make any sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. So this would be, I, I think the, uh, the right term for this is how do the thoughts, so this, there's a lot of scholarship being done on this now and how the Trinity relates to one another. It's called like the social Trinity or how the Trinity interacts with each other. I think that we, when it comes to will, we have to understand that they have the same will. You know, they're not, the, the, the son doesn't want to go left and the father wants to go right, you know, because then it becomes too much of a division. Um, so we can observe that again, being persons, I do think that you see three centers of consciousness that take place in their personhood. But I think that those consciousnesses are, are the same in the sense of they, they will the same thing. They want the same thing. They desire the same thing. They're for the same purposes, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, um, but they do, they do communicate with each other. They're not like, yeah, yeah. I do I think that, I already knew that, you know, I knew you were going to say that. Right, but, right, right, right. Well, so that would be, so, yeah. So I think that we don't want to put this whole sense of hu maybe human communication, like the way I communicate with you and the way that you communicate with me, assume that's how the Trinity communicates with each other. Maybe it's in a sense that, you know, there's some work on the perichoresis or the divine dance that the father proceeds into the son, or the father flows into the son, the son flows into the spirit, the spirit flows. in. so there's this, there is this communion that's taking place with the, and, and the essence of the Trinity. And there is communion that's taking place inside of the Trinity, whether that's them, Hey, what's going on? What are you up to today? What are you doing? I'm not sure if that's at the sentence level that's taking place, but I think that the way scholars have suggested is that they flow into one another. Okay. Mm -hmm. In that sense of community and they relate to the one another that way. Gotcha. Yeah. So that, you know, most of the communication you see in scripture is, you know, the divinity, the humanity of Christ, he's talking to the father, mm -hmm. like we talk to each other, but you know, much of, you know, like God doesn't have, you know, the creed saying, you know, God's not made of a part. So he doesn't have a, a mouth uh, yeah. or ears. And so their, their communication has to be, it's an, an analogy, right. To us, we think of them communicating, but in a sense, the, the, if, if they're, if, if one of them, let's say the father is, um, is um, omniscience, he, he knows everything. 
And then all three of them have to know everything. So they kind of already know. So there can't be sort of like, oh, thanks for telling me that. It has no, to be- you're right. Yeah. No, I would I wouldn't put that division between them. You know, yeah. I don't I don't think we can do that uh, between between God. I, I, I just am careful how much I divide the Trinity. You know, I know that there's they they flow into one another. They're, per, they're separate persons. They have conscious. OK, centers of consciousness. But and they have that proceeding that proceeding into one another. But as far as having different wills, different desires, or different levels of knowledge, I, I wouldn't suggest that they do. That's helpful. Thank you. Yep. Uh, last question. Um, and it's a little bit off Trinity, but we, you know, we talked a little bit about the two natures of Christ, divine and, um, and human, hypostatic union. That's what that's called, right? Uh-huh. And um, so the, uh, I've, I've never really been able to understand fully how the um, humanity of Christ fits in the Trinity. Um, like does the man Christ Jesus um, kind of know everything that the Trinity knows, or is he still even now in heaven seated at the right hand of God? Is he still, he, I, I, from what I understand, he still, he still has his bodily form. Yeah. I, I think that bodily form remains. I don't think that there's, there's any suggestion that that's going to change. It wouldn't change because he's taken up the resurrected form at the resurrection. Okay. So he remains in the Trinity. Um, and that we relate to him now as our high priest. So I think that high bo- that body that he, he has, that the son has, uh, is, is something that he took upon himself. I think that was the plan and that he represents mankind um, before the father as the high priest in, that, in that, that resurrected state of that resurrected body. And I think the message of Christianity is that, you know, he's calling us to that, that humanness, okay, that he has in that incarnation, that tr- to, to be truly human. If you look at us as humans, right? I don't think this is the, the ideal human state that we're in, right. right? You know, because this is this is corrupted flesh that we're in. He has an incorruptible body, and we're being invited to take on that body through resurrection that we share with Christ. He was first resurrected, that we may be resurrected. Okay, he tasted death so that all may taste life. So I think these suggestions suggest that Father, Son, who has the incarnate, who was who took upon himself, was proceeded from the Father to be incarnate who has a resurrected body and then you have spirit. So um, I think it's correct to say that in, in the Trinity, there's a resurrected Christ. Wow. That, so would you, would you say that Christ still has a human nature then? Um, even though it's, it's, yeah, a, it's I, a new form of a heavenly nature. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Resurrected body, fully divine, fully resurrected human. Absolutely. Sure. And so, and excuse me if my questions are a little bit weird. My wife. No, no, no. They, they're good questions. These, these are like these are like being in class, you know. And you have curious. Okay. Students. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and this one's maybe a little silly. When, when we get to heaven, um, God, you know, some of the scriptures talk about God is invisible. Uh, he's a spirit. He doesn't have flesh and bones. Who are we gonna see? Right? Who are we gonna see? Yeah, you know that one. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've we'll had see. a lot of students, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that um, that's a good question, and I'm careful to answer that one. I know you'll. I, I like to say I know you'll see Christ uh, in the sense of in His resurrected form. I believe that seeing the Father, seeing the Spirit. I, let me that one. I, I I can't answer with 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 um, with any level of definitiveness. And I only say that because I've asked professors the same question. Okay. And I, they've sort of given me the same answer. I, I think we can know that we'll see Christ in his resurrected form. Yeah. Um, will you see the father? Will you see this, this, this spirit? 
we'll see. You know, we shall <laughs> see. <laughs> well, whatever, whatever we see, it's going to be good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And whatever, whatever in through the glass darkly part we see now, it's really amazing, isn't it? You know what was funny in, in Bible school is that when we were writing things on the Trinity, uh, or writing papers, you have to be so careful how you nuance things, right? Because if you say, if you get one aspect of it unnuanced the wrong way, it's like, I remember I wrote a paper and I, I had to present it to class and I suggested something that teacher stopped me and said, we're, we're now going to burn Chris at the stake. <laughs> <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> and I was, <laughs> I said, what? Talk or afterwards? It was right in the middle of the talk. He was being funny. I said, for what? what? What did I do? He goes, the way you said this, I'm like, whoa, that was it. I didn't mean to say that. I can't remember what it was, but it was funny. So we, um, but it's good for us to talk about these things and wrestle with them uh, so that we can know the God that we serve. It's very yeah. important. Well, I'm glad you're doing that. I'm glad you're fighting this good fight of faith to bring, you know, uh, spirit-filled knowledge uh, to, to, to the, to the body of Christ and keep up the good work. It's really super encouraging. And I, I would encourage people to uh, grab your books online. This is Chris Palmer, um, in the, in our show notes, uh, you can find access to his YouTube, his Instagram, his website, uh, all manners of, uh, things that will help you. Uh, one of these days, if, if you don't mind coming back with us, yeah. Chris, I'd love to talk to you more about some of your, uh, some of the Greek words that you've studied, um, yeah. and how they, are pertinent and inspirational in our life today. That would be good. So that would be fantastic. That's, that's my, that's what I love. That's my area. I love that area. I would be honored to do it, Gary. It's been such a blessing being on your show and I admire you you and your work. Thank you so much. You, uh, what we didn't do is just find out a little bit more about you. Are you teaching? uh, Are you teaching at at, at, uh, uh, Moody or? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a adjunct prof at Moody and uh, I am uh, also working with a, um, working with a um, group or I should say a, a school called Theos University that's mm-hmm. based out of California. And they, they distill theology for perhaps people that want theology, but don't want to pay for, you know, huge sums of money for it. So they distill it and they do it. It's all, it's all online. It's a really cool. Wow. Thing. That sounds good. I love that. And uh, your family? Family, uh, single, and uh, my mom and my dad are here in Michigan. My brother is here in Michigan, and uh, so they're all they're all here. We're all Michiganders, and hopefully that'll change one day. I'll I'll be married in in the sun somewhere. So, <laughs> <laughs> two great goals. And uh, <laughs> does your family go to your church? Family comes to my church, and okay. uh, so it's good. To, it's good to have them there. But uh, you know, maybe we'll have a church in Florida one of these days. That would be nicer, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Well, thank you again, Chris, for your time. Really appreciate it. God bless you. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you, Gary. The Gary Wilkerson Podcast is brought to you by World Challenge, transforming lives through the message and mission of Jesus Christ. Each week, this podcast reaches thousands of listeners. This critical work is made possible by the generous contributions of individuals like you who believe in World Challenge's mission. Thank you for listening and supporting.